Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest is editor, historian and author of soon-to-be-released Shakespeare's Will, Meredith Whitford. Meredith, welcome. Hello and welcome and thank you for welcoming me and having me on the show. Now, before we begin chatting about the book, um, can I get you to just orient the listeners and read to us a little bit from Shakespeare's Will? Yes, okay. um, I've got the first bit here. Um, This is from when Shakespeare and Anne Hathaway first meet. Uh, It's summer of 1582, so do you want me to start reading the first chapter? Yes, please. Right. do my best. I don't know whether I'm very good at reading like this. All right, chapter one, and it's 1582, summer in Stratford. The clock's gilded hand jerked forward, another minute gone. Another 30 and the bell would ring for end of market, 11 o'clock and home for dinner. The crowds were thinning, other stalls were closing, out packing away their goods. He dared not follow suit, because his father was strict and every penny counted, dared not miss a sale. But under the counter, propped open, Ovid took him far from Stratford's Thursday market, took him into the world he wanted to be his. But into that world came duty trade, a woman saying, in fact, selling gloves. He looked up, the vendor's patter ready on his tongue. He saw grey eyes, dark hair under a straw hat, and an amused smile. A familiar face. And Mr. Sathaway. I wondered if you'd remember me. Of course, why not? I haven't been away that long. Two years. I've heard you back. You should have come to call on us. My father keeps me busy, as you see. Trade's poor today, but just the same. Well, cheer up, it's about to amend a little for her. Right? I'm glad to see you. I really do need to buy gloves. Mistress, you shall have gloves. The finest in all England, the finest in the known world. Cheveril, deerskin, pigskin. Your size, madam, and the colour you prefer for every day or something finer. Brisbane business like that's the way. The finest in Stratford will do. When did you return? Last week. I'm bored already. And bored already. Give me a hand. She had already taken off her own gloves. He took her hand, stroking her fingers straight, the finger and thumb of his right hand encircling her wrist. When they were children, he'd often clasped her hand to gain her attention for his chatter or to keep up with her as they walked. This now was a different touch. She was a farmer's daughter, but hers was no housewife's hand. Of course, the Hathaways were well-to-do. Their daughters didn't labour in the fields, and Anne could afford the rose water he smelled on her skin. He liked the trusting way his small, sun-browned hand lay in his. She was looking at him oddly, the beginning of a frown, pulling her dark brows together. Quickly, he smoothed the glove on her hand. See how sweetly it fits, how smoothly, how uh, fittingly? That made him laugh. You're very poetic for a glover. A glover is very close to lover and must love and not be poetic, mistress. You may well be a lover, sir, but to me, you're a glover. I would be both, lady. Maybe, but only the market for gloves, not love. Give me first refusal when you do shop for love, mistress. But I do not look to purchase love. Nay, I give it freely. So, if love is close to glove, you must give me the gloves freely, which is just as well, for I do not require crimson gloves, nor can I afford them. The crimson becomes to you with your hair, your eyes. Yes, crimson. Try the other glove if you will not try my love. Resistless, resistless laughing, she tried the other glove. Cheveril was the most expensive leather and crimson gloves. Your father knows his business when he leaves you in charge. I'll take them, but I must have some plainer ones as well. Yes, both. 
We have them sent, or may I bear them like a gift to you? No. I will bear them, or at least I'll wear them. Best wrap up the crimson ones. And she did so, and she thrust them deep in her basket. She said, where is it you've been, William? In the north, wasn't it? Lancashire. Oh, at least you've travelled. I've been there more than five miles from Stratford all my life. And would you like to? Oh, very much. Doubt over will, though. Ordinary women like me don't. I'd love to see London. Tell you a secret, and it really is a secret. I was supposed to come straight home from Lancashire, but I told some lies. I fudged the time I was to leave, and I went to London. I had a whole week there. Oh, she sighed, and is it marvellous? Beautiful. Full of marvels and beautiful in lots of ways. Also crowded, dirty, noisy, and I loved it. As if by way of punctuation, the bell rang for the close of market, and prompt as conscience came voice man's stepmother at her shoulder. So there you are. I've been looking everywhere for you. We'll be late home. Have you bought the cascara for Tom's constipation? Yes, mother. Then come along. I must pay for my gloves. I'll catch you up. Putting the money on the counter, she said quickly, softly to William, you come to visit us. You're always welcome. Please do. I'd like that. I haven't forgotten the way. Good. Mrs. Hathaway was waiting, staring back at her. I must go. Yes. Goodbye. I think that'll do for now. <laughs> yes, as I said, the first meeting. Yes, and there's quite a lot in that section, isn't there? I, I, not only in terms of the characters themselves, but I really like the way you make the dialogue between Anne and Will almost Shakespearean with the puns and the, the rhythm of it is quite, it's quite like some of the dialogue you encounter in the plays. Was that deliberate? Um I'd love to say it was. I guess subconsciously it was. That was the first scene I ever wrote when I was... Oh, the whole book began because I was sick of male biographers banging on about how the poor, innocent teenage Shakespeare was trapped by this older harpy who trapped him into a shotgun marriage and saddled him with three kids before he was 21 so that he couldn't wait to get away. And I thought, oh, this is nonsense. And one day, oh, this is a long time ago, even before Shakespeare in love, I just had to think, I bet I could think of a better sort of wife for him than that. And that was the first thing I wrote, and it just came. Well, you're a writer. You know what it's like. Things just come. And that sort of flirtatious kind of band back and forth and the rhythm just happened. Mind you, I had been reading a lot of Shakespeare at the time, so I'd have to say probably subconscious that it... Uh, came out quite like that, but I was rather pleased with that, with the puns and the way they banter back and forth. A little bit of flirtation in there too. Yes, I, I like the, um, you're very poetic for a glover, <laughs> that, <laughs> that, that the whole lover, glover. Um, mm. You know, there, there's, there's quite a lot of interesting poetry going on there. Yes, yes, and some nice puns and jokes and things. And, and, and then yes. the, the sharp difference when they get to Anne's house with her mother's voice, suddenly the poetry stops immediately. Yes, if you bought the cascara for Tom's constipation. Yes. <laughs> yes, it sort of you know, cuts right across that. And, of course, they do go on meeting and uh, they become good friends. And Shakespeare, who's only 18 at the stage, confides in Anne about his dreams of being an actor and a writer. And she's sort of the only one who understands and listens to what he reads and sort of supports him. And uh, then, of course... Um, what happens uh, often happens, and they end up having to get married fairly quickly. And he feels a bit as if he's going to be stuck in Stratford forever with three kids and a wife. And for one who says, "No, you know, we might have to put up with it for a little while, but you're going to 
at least if you dream a chance later on, the first type of chance you get. So she's the one who sort of urges him into it uh, in the uh, or, uh, still early stages of their marriage, still in the 1580s. And off he eventually goes to London. I got the feeling that this was very much Anne's story, that, you know, they had her point of view through most of the book. <laughs> yes. It, um, as I said, I started off with this other, I don't know whether you'd call it feminist or feminist or feminine annoyance with these male biographers who assume that because she was older and because she was just a country girl and probably illiterate and blah, blah, that they couldn't have had anything in common and they couldn't have been happy and... He shot through as fast as he could and stayed in London as much as he could. I just thought, oh, look, it's nonsense. Because, oh, you know, actually, we know absolutely nothing about a lot of Shakespeare's life. Um, so I sort of started off trying to create this, um, you know, an intelligent, supportive wife and you know, one that he could at least uh, be fond of, even if he didn't love her passionately, you know, given that they did have to rush into a shotgun marriage. And I was going to tell the whole book from her point of view originally, but then, of course, later on, when he's in London and when he's having all the love affairs that uh, eventually cause trouble in their marriage, um, you know, it had to be from his point of view and others. But it's it's Anne's book, I think. Yes, it's sort of her story that she, you know, puts up with. She does put up with an awful lot from him, but that's because she believes in him. But then finally, uh, he goes too far, and she says, "Righty ho, I'm leaving you." And uh, then they have to sort themselves out from that point. Yes, did you? Uh, I, I know you were reading a lot of Shakespeare when you wrote it, but there's quite an interesting relationship that I felt as a reader between not only the fact and fiction in Shakespeare's biography, but the fact and fiction that you know that, that brings in much of his work, mm, um, and his own fact and fiction, because of course his work is also yes. you know has fact and fiction in it. Yes, it's a great one for. You know, adapting uh, other people's works and adapting history. Um, most of his history plays, of course, aren't really very factual, which is something I learned at school, where um teacher taught us the difference between propaganda and, and drama. But um, it, it sort of worked out quite easily, I found, when I was writing the book, that I could sort of... Because we don't know when many of his plays or sonnets were written, It's um, with a few exceptions, of course, you can... You're fairly free to think, well, I'll pop this sonnet in here, like um, the one at the end when he's trying to get back with Anne, the one that says, you know, when in disgrace with fortune in men's eyes, and the very early one uh, that he writes her um, for her birthday. And it's um, clearly one of his very early ones because it's really not very good. And even Anne, um, you know, as a country girl thinks, well, as a poet, he makes a good glover. But um, it's sort of pick and choose and... Um, it's just, well, you know, as a writer, it's just a matter of how the plot turns and how the characters decide to act. And you think, well, this is a good place to put in a bit from that. Um, like, we don't really know when King John was written, but after their son's death, um, there's no reason why he shouldn't have been writing that very sad and touching few lines. Uh, Grief fills the room up with my absent child and use that then. Excuse me, I've got a sip of water. Yeah, so it's, it, 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 there's quite a, you know, a sort of lovely almost playing going on as if, you know, Shakespeare played this game that you've kind of joined in on where you're, think, you know, pulling so, yeah. bits and pieces and turning them into a kind of a world. Mm. 
Yeah, I think so. And, and, and of course, the writing process is interesting because you can never look back and be totally sure at any point of a book whether you meant to do that or whether it just happened. You know, as I said, I was obviously reading a lot of Shakespeare while I wrote this. Cause I was sort of writing this book over many years and um, I'm a bit dim. It's only finally dawned on me that I really am a historical novelist because I was having, I was trying to write a modern novel, couldn't get it to work, and, and I'd go back to this Shakespeare novel sort of in fits and starts. And then one day I started reading it through and thought, this is all right. And... Uh, it sort of worked so easily for me, like my first one. Um, I thought, oh, well, there you are, I'm a historical novelist. I'll get up fooling around with the modern one. But, um, yes, with someone like Shakespeare, of course, you can bring in so many uh, different influences and um, perhaps work, well, I'll, go to, I'll almost go to say in a way as he must have, but that's uh, a very huge claim, isn't it? But, yeah, bringing to fiction play, playing around with it, playing the scenes and putting things in. Um, shaping and sort of selecting bits, you know, it's a fascinating process, but you can never tell how much of it's conscious while they're doing it. Is you it? look back afterwards and think, oh, that worked well. How did I manage that? Uh, the bard, the bard continues to draw interest. Um, you know, we we see him in many modern renditions. You know, as yes. it, it, as as modern, if if you can call it modern, as you know, the recent Doctor Who episodes. Why yes. why is he still here with us? Do you think? Um, well, obviously, um, the quality of, of his writing, the plays, which most people know much more than his poetry. Um, I mean, a lot of people do know sonnets. Very few people know the long poems. I think, I think it's rather sad, I think he longed to be known and accepted as a poet. He wrote you know, Venus and Adonis, and followed that up with um, The Rape of Lucrece, and they were red-hot bestsellers in the 1590s and made him a star. I mean, he was, he'd already been writing for the theatre. But I think he really longed to be a poet. It was just, he was so very good at writing plays, and once he was in the theatre, and once he'd bought a share in the theatre company, the playing company, he had to help runners as well, so he just had to keep on writing the plays. But I'm not saying he didn't enjoy writing them, but uh, I think secretly he would have liked his reputation to have been remembered as a poet. But Yes, the plays, they, they, they go on getting us over the centuries. So I took my son when I was in England, my adult son, to um, see some Shakespeare at the Royal Shakespeare Company. And he looked a bit puzzled and he said, how, how are jokes still funny after 400 years? And I said, well, I don't really know except that's Shakespeare. And of course, I think part of it too is that we don't really know a great deal about him himself. We know a few facts, you know, property purchases and when his children were baptised and that sort of thing, but nothing about him as a person. So we can create our own Shakespeare, our own bard. And everybody does it, you know, from Shakespeare in last as you say, the Doctor Who episodes, which I rather enjoy. Um, and of course his plays are, are capable of so many different interpretations and well as you know, you know, Every sort of production of his plays has been done, and and do you think too there's a kind of uh, you know almost a kind of verisimilitude in the plays that changed what literature aimed to do to a certain extent? You know that suddenly the real man mm. on the street, the real voice, the voice inside, yes. you know those things became prevalent instead of the high yes. voice of the poetry. I think so. Yes, he. Um, I mean, it's, it's obvious to say he's writing in the language of his own day. But I mean, we tend to forget that a bit. And uh, to us, you know, we have it crammed in our throats at school and we don't understand a lot of it. 
But, um, yeah, and half of it's still, even if we don't understand every word or we have to look up notes to see exactly what the point of a joke is or something like that, the um, essential humanity and verisimilitude always does come through. I mean, um, take, or say Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet, um, that was, oh goodness, 15 years ago. But suddenly kids are saying, oh, hey, you know, Romeo and Juliet, it's, it's sort of like our lives. I mean, our parents are like that, you know, except for the death and poison and all that sort of thing. But, um, yeah, people suddenly find that they can relate. And he must have had just such an imagination and, and an understanding. He must be one of those people who was watching people, not in an unpleasant way, but, you know, just taking things in, never missing a trick and I think quite <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I did warn you about the hair theatre. Um yes, I think he just you know, was observant and he had an instinctive understanding of, of people and of humanity. And getting back to his relationship with Anne in in my book, um, they're a real married couple, like so many of the married couples in his plays are, they're real. Um, they're partners and friends as well as husband and wife. I mean, even the Gasly Macbeth start off as a, you know, a real married couple. They go a little bit off the rails, yes. But then so many of the other players, and Shakespeare obviously liked women, and I think he thought rather well of marriage because his married couples are real, and the, the women think they should be in their husband's confidence, and they mind if their husbands seem to be getting up to something, and the husbands look after their wives. And, so I, I think really he had a happy marriage and he liked his family, loved them. And I think he just knew people and noticed things. And obviously, he just had that genius for writing. His women are quite, um, they're quite bolshy too. They're quite modern in their approach. I mean, I think of yes. Beatrice and other characters like that who are very, you know, they're, 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 they speak their minds. <laughs> it's an excellent example because she certainly speaks her mind and she doesn't have to be. Um, quiet or timid or, you know, what we tend to think of as, you know, we think of women as from hundreds of years ago as having to be very timid or quiet or obedient and Shakespeare's women certainly aren't. Um, um, I'm doing a, a master's at Flinders University in creative writing but I just have an excellent module on Shakespeare in first semester. And right from the early place, like the Comedy of Errors, these women are very strong, very forthright. And they never hesitate to say what they think. And no, you you could almost say that Lady Macbeth, for example, is the actual... Um, <laughs> she's sort of the, the, key, the key murderer. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, she's the one who says, now, you know, look, stop waffling and get on and do it. You know, let's have a bit of ambition going here. Yes, yeah, quite, um, quite needy for the actresses <laughs> when, when they finally yeah. became women who were playing them. Yes. Yes, so uh, I mean, there's just so many examples, as you say, Beatrice or or Twelfth Night, and um, even the women who aren't uh, dressed as boys and pretend to be men are very forthright and uh, straightforward and plain about what they want. And you know, if they want a man, they go after him. And um, if they're a married woman, they don't hesitate to tick their husband off or you know complain if they're not take, being taken into their confidence. So I don't think attitudes in that sort of way have really changed much over well, probably over thousands of years but to when we read Shakespeare we think you know, that sounds quite modern and then oh, excuse me sorry Maggie I did warn you about hay fever they were very dainty sneezes <laughs> Jen, 
tell me a little bit now about about your former publishing project, Jacobite Books. Oh, uh, yes. Well, that actually, actually came about not by accident, but almost as a, a technical exercise. Because, um, I mean, we have to go back to last century, which sounds wonderful, back to 1999. I went to some sort of writers' conference, I can't remember now, and somebody was talking about e-books. And uh, I came home and I told my husband about it. He's been in IT for oh, about 35 years or something. And I knew he'd be interested and, and I sort of left it at that. But he told a friend and colleague of his who's also in IT and she was fascinated and she told her husband who's not in IT but who's, who's a poet and a, a painter. And they said, oh, let's get this e-book thing and go. Let's just see if we can publish, you know, etc. More or less, you know, from the technical point of view for the two techies and... I was an editor and writer, and uh, we had the poets and the painter to do that covers. And we had an accountant and a project manager as part of the group. So we started off thinking, oh, you know, we'll be lucky to find three or four people who want to have e-books published. And straight away we found out that hundreds of people wanting to be published in any form. And um, I think we had well over 50 Authors published in ebook form alone before in it was 2000 we found the first print on demand publisher here in Adelaide, first one in Australia. I mean, so we were actually the first publisher to use print on demand uh, so that we could publish our books in paperback as well as ebook form. And we sort of went on from there. So we sort of accidentally became publishers. We had authors from all over the world and we did really very well. We won prizes. Um, we won two, or we, I say, I mean our authors, of course, won two Epi Award, international awards for historical fiction. Quite proud to say I won one of them for one of my first books. and We won the Romantic Book of the Year Award. Um, one of our books was on the shortlist of five at the Festival of Arts. To, um, innovation for in fiction award, um, so you know we were doing really well and we were very well known online. But of course here in Australia, nobody wanted to know about e-books. It was the end of civilization as we know it. So we never, we never got any funding, any support, any interest taken. The literary industry had its fingers in its ears and it was running around going la la la. Don't want to know. Um, but you know we went on until really it was the GST that got us in the end. If we stuck to e-books as these days. We could have, but of course we had published paperbacks as well. You know, going back ten years, and the GST just stacked on the uh, costs at every level of, of everything we did, and it just became too much. But we had this sort of gentleman's agreement with Bright Books, who were operating in exactly the same way as we were and still do, and um, they were able to take quite a lot of our titles. When finally we had to. I mean, we never actually made a loss or anything, but it just got to that point where, you know, without backing or funding, and we tried about four times to get out of funding, we were just told to go away, which annoys me now when I think of the really good Australian authors we had who had to be left high and dry because B. Wright couldn't take all that titles, obviously. I think we well, applied something like $12,000 worth of funding, which would have enabled B. Wright to take all our titles. Especially the Australian ones, but uh, that wasn't to be. So yes, I mean, I mean nowadays everyone say, "Oh, e-books! Uh, you know, this wonderful new invention and print on demand." And we just sigh and say, "Look, we were doing this ten or eleven years ago." 
Do you think, though, that something has changed? I mean, is it readers, not so much the people who are reading, but actually handheld readers? Has it become almost like holding a book? Well, to hold... the, the better than they were. I mean, there were people saying, oh, readers, what a fantastic invention. But again, they were around 10 years ago. There was the Rocket Book and the, um, I think it was called the Sony Stuff Book, and I had a Franklin e-book reader. I'm sure today it's a better, but, uh, you know, another sneeze. But, <laughs> But of course, things like the iPad have totally changed things. My ebook reader is Kurgan, which is an Australian brand, and that's just a dedicated ebook reader. It doesn't do anything else. It's not a computer. It's excellent to read on because it's got a really good clear screen. Uh, I do rather hanker after an iPad, but I'm afraid I can't afford it at the moment. But um, if people are suddenly accepting, uh, well, I mean. In the last 10 years, technology has become so much more a part of our lives. School kids these days really can't envisage a world in which they'd be limited to printed books for their only source of information. That libraries are having to change dramatically. I know my library down at Flinders is, um, you know, look, is already you know, as digital as it can be and will be more so in the future. And Adelaide University is giving all its students iPads next year um, and look you know just in 10 years this sort of change from like I said this attitude of e-books or the end of civilization to now everyone takes them for granted and in fact in the last year e-books on Amazon and various other publishers have outsold paperbacks or hardbacks or you know whatever you want to call them printed books tree books so there really has been much and of course e-books are much cheaper you can get an um I think Shakespeare's World's going to sell for about five ninety nine as an e-book, and that's in all formats to suit all readers, and you know the iPad or a computer or whatever. Um, paperback will be, I'm not sure yet, probably around about twenty dollars. But that's the general rule, of course. E-books are cheap, so you know if you've got a good e-book reading, you can stuff it full of literally thousands of books for a very small cost. And then if you go on holidays, you've only got to take a little light plastic e-book read instead of a suitcase full of books. I'm a real print addict. I can't go anywhere without plenty of books to read. Yes. Do you think, though, that um, there's really not much of a difference? I mean, that really, nevertheless, whether you're reading on a a little portable screen or Mm. reading on paper, we're still reading a book. It's still a book. Um, It's just that we've always been used to paper back or you know paper books I should say hardbacks or paperbacks uh, and a lot of people have for well did for a long time take this attitude oh I could never read on the screen it's certainly tiring on your eyes if you read on a computer screen but the e-book readers aren't backlit it's the e-ink I think it's called form so they're very easy to read and once you get used to it which doesn't really take very long only a few pages into a book you know, you know, you're just reading instead of physically turning a, you know, lifting your finger and turning a page. You're just pressing a button for the next page, and it's just a different way of conveying information. Even um, P.D. James, who's 90, said in her recent book on detective fiction that uh, it's just a different way of conveying information, and people shouldn't make this distinction between a paper book or a, you know, a book you read on a. Uh, an e-book reader or some other device. It's just a way of conveying information. And of course, to, to kids, school kids and 
university students, it's all they used to. They live in a totally digitized world. Perhaps, too, there's a space issue involved. I mean, I think um, some of us might be running out of bookshelf space, for example, or a house space, or, you know, we, we no longer live in a world, of, even in Australia, um, but maybe less so here than in other places. But nevertheless, we no longer live in a world with unlimited space around us. Exactly, yes. I never have enough space for my books. I've got, uh, we're lucky to have a big-ish, older sort of house, and there's a... And they did some alterations in the 60s. They left a sort of space in the middle. And it's an annual library. So but let me see. I've got four big bookcases in there and about three elsewhere. And then two in my study. And I've still got books all over the place. There's just never enough room for them. I must admit, I rather miss having books around in that sense. I know, you know, I can pick up a naive book reader and it's got as many books in it as I've got on, on all these shelves. Minus the dust, of course, that's the other thing. So I'm allergic to dust, especially the, the you know, nasty smelling dust that you get in old books. So you don't have that problem with an ebook reader either, because uh, every time I clean my bookshelves, I you know, retire for about a week, coughing and sneezing like that. So it's got that advantage too. Yes, it's, maybe it's just the nostalgic um, sense. I, I have to admit, I always feel safe with books around me, as if they were some kind of protection. <laughs> it's, uh, I think it was, was it Pushkin, who, when he was dying, looked around him at his bookcases and said, goodbye, my friends. <laughs> and I know you could have the same emotion about an e-book reader full of books. It's not quite the same, though, is it? No, they're a bit more utilitarian. Yes, and, and there's some... Yes, and, feel safe too when I've got books around you know physical books I've got I'm just sitting here talking to you on the phone I've got let me see I've got five within just with it you know on the coffee table and on the yes yeah, sofa beside me and on my husband's bridge stuff now I've got six books so there you go everything from punch cartoons to a nice serial killer novel and a copy of Shakespeare's sonnets <laughs> Of course. So, look, we're, we're nearly out of time. Um, oh, what's, on, what's on the cards for you? What are you currently working on? Um, well, I'm doing a master's degree in creative writing. So next year I've got to write my thesis. Um, and I've also got a book sort of on the go. I did get a grant from the um, Literature Board, the Australia Council, to research this book about Jessica Mitford and uh, her first husband, who was um, Churchill's nephew. I've done a lot of research. I went overseas and did a lot of research in various archives, but uh, I've still got stuck three quarters of the way through the books because I've suddenly decided to change the whole angle from which I was going to write it. And then, of course, you know, I sort of got stuck on that, so I went back to Shakespeare and suddenly thought, oh, yes, I've got a novel here. So um, <coughs> my non-fiction works sitting there looking at me reproachfully. But, um, yes, the next thing I'll have to be my master's thesis next year. Yes. Better get stuck into that. I do still have lurking modern novel, which I'd like to finish one of these days, just because it's been lurking for so long. But and I can start to feel the urge to write another historical, but I don't know on what you know what the subject would be. And people have often asked me to write a sequel or a prequel to Treason, my first one about Richard III, and it's, I've just never had quite not the inspiration, but I need the character to set it off. Um, like Treason was told narrated by a fictional character. I need somebody like that to come along. So there'll be another historical fairly soon, I hope, but I just have to find someone who can spark off telling the story. But uh, work-wise, yes, really, it's got to be the thesis next year. 
Well, good luck with that. And uh, I'll, I've, I've got my copy of Treason, so I'm looking Excellent. forward to getting stuck into it. I hope you enjoy that. It's done very well. It's produced you know, the whole ebook thing. It's been sitting there for 10 years and got very good reviews on Amazon and on my publisher's site. And it sells really quite well and goes on selling. It's been very popular. So I hope the new one will be just as popular too. Yes, yes. Because a lot of people are going to say, oh, Shakespeare, how dare you take on Shakespeare? I know, you've, you've done masterfully with it. But look, oh, thank you, Maggie, thank you. You know how to compliment a writer. <laughs> now, look, that's all we have time for today. Thank, okay. thank you so much for dropping by, Meredith. It's been lovely talking to you. Thanks, Maggie. Now, our next, our next guest will be Tim Flannery, who is, uh, I can keep going, Australian mammalogist, yes. paleontologist, yes. conservationist, global animal activist. Very good company, I must say. Yes, yeah, so um, he'll be dropping by to talk about his new book here on Earth. And that's Excellent. it. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye.